listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 266. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hallo! Hey, san, hey, san. All right, <laughs> back again. Yeah. Oh, we are fast, right? We we are just super fast every week. We are faster than the speed of light. You might uh, think. Yes, are we? Are we? Yeah, I, I'd like that to hope nice. so. I'd like to hope so. We. we <laughs> Uh, so I, I want to go to a science uh, item before we start here uh, about the speed of light. Mm-hmm. Because we have this unfortunate limitation of not even theoretically being able to travel faster than the speed of light. <laughs> Stupid Einstein and his ideas. Well, well, well. He did come up with a couple of things. Yeah, well, okay. He, did, he got some things right. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. But we need to beat that. And there <laughs> have been some ideas uh, uh, about bending the structure of space instead of traveling f- faster than the speed of light and it's somehow make that as a, a vehicle or a, a transportation mode to, to go somewhere very fast. But the problem with that is that uh, it requires so much energy, even in theory, that it would be virtually impossible. Mm. But now there's a new idea by a physicist called Eric Lenz from Göttingen University in Germany. Hello, Annika. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he wants to fix the problem thanks to what he calls a new class of hyperfast solitons, a kind of wave that maintains its shape and its energy while moving at a constant velocity. And I'm quoting, as you can hear, even faster than the speed of light. And he says that if you could contain a spaceship inside a bubble uh, of a soliton wave, it would be shielded from the extreme uh, tidal or time effects by traveling very fast and not r- require so so-called negative energy, which we don't even know if it exists. Mm. And it wouldn't break uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity. So problem is solved. You <laughs> well, yay! <laughs> not not so fast. Not quite. Okay. Uh, again, <laughs> it is a question of how much energy it would take. Uh, Lenz estimates that it would take all the energy represented by the mass of Jupiter times 100. <laughs> okay. That's how much energy not much. <laughs> you would need to... The only thing we need is a dilithium yeah, crystal. Yeah, that, that, he's looking for that as well, I'm sure. But, <laughs> but if you had 100 times the mass of Jupiter and converted that into energy, you could propel a 100 meter long spaceship. So, so then you could go basically where you wanted. Mm. But he recognizes that this is a problem. So now the only thing left, quote unquote, would be to bring that energy requirement down by actually 30 orders of magnitude <laughs> and then we're in business he says piece of cake <laughs> I, I, I wish him luck and uh, and it's a serious research i mean of course it's not something we will start using tomorrow but if it was where would you go guys what if we could transport ourselves almost instantaneously speed of light or well even faster than the speed of light so you could go to the nearest star in a few months that would that would be great, wouldn't it? Hmm, I think the first thing I would probably do is I would go to Australia first <laughs> <laughs> because I haven't see, seen the in-laws in, in like two years. That would be such a waste of all that energy. Yeah, right. No, 
I didn't see them for a long time. So first I would go to Australia and then I would go to some star, you know. <laughs> but first Australia. Okay, okay. Mm. Ah, okay. You get your priorities right. Okay, good. For, for me, I would, I would visit the, the planets of, of uh, the solar system first. You would start at home. I would start at sort home. Of. I, would, I would love to see all of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot we don't up. know about the the planets. Uh, exactly. Still, I would go to Europa. Yeah, Europa, the the moon of uh, Jupiter. Find the Europeans. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> I'm. You know, I'm. A, I'm a proud European. Uh, we have to be able to find someone else there that right. claims to be a proud European. <laughs> well, if you go to Europa, I go to Australia, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> right. Uh, anyway, it opens up um, ideas. Um, yes, but it's a, yeah, yeah. But I, I I like the name of it as well. Yeah. Hyperfast solitons that mm. appeals to me somehow mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i want one of some of those and it was also einstein's birthday on sunday Ooh! oh yeah it was right yeah it was it was it was of course yeah and that was pi day as well pi day yeah yeah, pi day. yeah. Exactly. yeah. and i'm of course friends with einstein on facebook so i get an automatic um, Are you? reminder <laughs> good for you yeah. and uh did you greet him properly <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, any any nice birthday wishes? No, 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 I didn't. I think uh, no. <laughs> I was wondering how he reacted. But yeah, but I've been calling him lately, but he doesn't return my calls. I don't know why. <laughs> Bastard. Yeah, I got reminded um, of the birthday of Einstein by a listener, and um, mm -hmm. yeah, I, would, I think I would just like to say thank you to our listeners who who write in and remind us of these dates and give us ideas and suggestions because I really appreciate that. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we, we're always thankful to our listeners uh, for uh, getting in touch, and we like getting emails, even if it's criticism, uh, like we did mention things like that on uh, on previous episodes. We do like that we do like being corrected as long as we can make the proper corrections we can turn it into something useful and if it's just feedback if it's uh, letting us know that you're listening then uh, we're more than happy to hear from you uh, especially if you if you give us some some background as to where you're listening from or uh, if uh, you haven't heard from our show about anything going on in your country and you would like to add something then let us know get in touch and, and let us know so what else? What else has happened since we convened here? I have another science thing. <laughs> Something a little bit more down to earth. That was really, really cool as well. Uh, the Antikythera mechanism. Mm. Uh, do you know what that is? No. Nope. I mean, I mean, I've heard of it, yeah. but I have no idea what it is. Uh, it's, the, it's the coolest thing. It's something, it's an ancient Greek astronomical calculator that was discovered in a Roman shipwreck mm -hmm. over a hundred years ago. It looks like a, a beautiful clock or something, mm -hmm. but it's 2000 years old. And not surprisingly, it doesn't work anymore. It's split into over 80 fragments, I'm told. And... Uh, only actually a third of it uh, survives, and there are. But there are. You can still see that it, this is some sort of very sophisticated mechanism with uh, lots of gear wheels and cogs and stuff. And it was hand driven, of course. Uh, you had a little crank on the side, and uh, when you cranked it, you could foresee uh, different celestial events, such as when it was going to be a full moon, the movement of the five known planets at the time, known planets, and even when it was going to be an eclipse and, and things like that. And in 2005, they did a special x-ray thingy uh, of the whole thing. So they documented it without... It's, of course, very delicate. You don't want to pull it apart. But they managed to, to look through the whole thing 
And there's been a lot of attempts since then to figure out how it actually worked. And the new thing here is that there was a new paper where they had gone through it again and they have created this digital 3D model of how all the cogwheels and gears worked in the original. And of course, they've had to make some assumptions and some guesswork is involved, I, I believe, but the result is really, really fascinating. You can see in detail how it was built and how the mechanism inside is rotating uh, with gears and stuff to show the planets and other symbols moving on the outside. It's quite remarkable. So it's an open access paper. So we like that as well, of course. Yeah. And we'll put the link directly to the paper in the show notes if one mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. go check it out because it's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And sure. when this was discovered, and even now, I don't think there was any record of uh, the Greeks, ancient Greeks, being able to do things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's quite remarkable. Well, we've always known that uh, they were very knowledgeable about the goings on in the night sky. Yeah. So. Uh, yes. Well, that's the reason everything is named after Greeks and Romans, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. They were they were smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but building such a machine is something something very spectacular. Yeah. A little handheld device, and you cranked it, and you can see exactly what the, where the planets were and where they were going to be. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, <laughs> let's move on to talking about something that actually has something to do with the show. Finding out what happened this week in skepticism. Cheers. On the 19th of March, 1992, the um, TTT was founded, and that is, in English, the Society of the Admirers of Facts, or in Hungarian, <laughs> Wow, I love that. I love that. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> okay. But the Tarsha Saga, or as um, <laughs> Andras would correctly pronounce it, please. <laughs> uh, actually, you did a brilliant job, but I would say Tényeket tisztelők Tarsha Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and they were the predecessor of the Hungarian Skeptic Society and were aiming to be a counterpoint to the explosion of pseudoscience after the fall of communism. Mm-hmm. And they were mostly composed of well-known and respected Hungarian experts in uh, science and science communication, like, um, yeah, butchering it again, uh, Janos Sen- Sentagotai. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was a big figure of, of um, the scientific world of Hungary. Yes, and he was also like their president and they were for the consistent application and demonstration of scientific skepticism. And another notable member that I found on the list in Wikipedia was um, Gabo Hrashko. Ooh, mm-hmm. and that's right. And were you also a member, Andras? No, no. I was uh, such a small guy, a nobody, that I, I was not, not even considered as a member. I didn't even dare apply uh, for a membership. I have to mention, though, that it wasn't an officially recognized organization. It worked as one, but it was never officially registered. Yeah. But they co-organized the annual gatherings of the Hungarian skeptics of Hungary that took place in Székesfehérvár, which is my hometown. And this is how I got to know all these people. 
that I attended, I, I think from the second one onwards, I attended all of them. The first one was held in 1995. And uh, and that's how the Hungarian skeptics came about. The Hungarian <laughs> skeptics came about as uh, after a while, especially with Gabor and myself, and we got to know a lot of other guys that are still members. Some of them are not members, members anymore. They were the free thinkers, the Hungarian free thinkers. They were among the, the, the first members of the Hungarian Skeptic Society as well. So just about 20 of us decided to launch the, the organization. And we registered this organization. And that is the organization that I'm currently president of. Yeah, it's just, it's just really cool. And that's why skeptical work is always great. Yeah, yeah so what we, what we can pretty much say is happy birthday. <laughs> and then you get to still a Tasha Shaga. Yeah. Yeah, happy birthday. And um, I know that they're not active anymore, but the Hungarian skeptics are. And um, Yeah, there are two issues, only two issues, if, if I may, may say so, uh, with the Hungarian admirers of the facts. I'm not used to saying that in English. <laughs> but uh, there were two problems with it. The first one was that they were mostly elderly scientists. Yeah, I, I read that, that they were mostly well-known people. Yes, yeah. they couldn't really appeal to young people. Uh, they didn't really know what to do with media. Their media presence was not very strong. And the other thing was this kind of elitism, that mostly they were academics. And by academics, I don't just mean that people who work in academia, but people who were members of the Hungarian Academy of Sciences, mostly. <laughs> mm. Oh, yeah. So that was a little bit too much for a lot of people, like small people like me. And uh, we, we, what we wanted to do differently with the Hungarian Skeptic Society is that we wanted this to be a movement instead of this high society of scientists. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's also part of a bit of like democracy isn't mm -hmm. it like that that people can um participate in, in things like that and yeah exactly that's also something that's very important for us in gwup yeah. for example that people yeah. can participate and that you try to not speak in a way that they can't that nobody can understand it except for mm -hmm. peers of your own field of study <laughs> yeah that's right okay thanks for remembering that date onika that's very nice thank you <laughs> and i'm eager to find out what Pontus has got to poke the Pope for. All right, then. So, Susan, uh, finally, I will bring up the sex abuse scandal that I've been teasing you about for two weeks now. So this is far from the biggest scandal that you've heard of when it comes to the Catholic Church, but it's bad enough, and it comes from within the Vatican itself, which makes it a little bit special. And the actual abuse concerns a student at the pre-seminary of St. Pius X on Vatican grounds. And this guy sexually abused another student that was one year his junior. And uh, this abuser, we know who it was, he is today a priest and he's called Gabriele Martinelli. The identity of the younger person, of course, is kept uh, anonymous at this point. And the abuse took place uh, during 2007 and 2012. So it's five years, quite a long time. Wow. Uh, and they were both minors at the time. And what is unique to this story is not just that it happened in the actual Vatican. That is important. I'll come back to that. But it's also unique in that during an ongoing Vatican tribunal, which started uh, last year and is still ongoing, 
No fewer than three witnesses have now said that this abuse was known by the Italian Cardinal Angelo Comastri at the time, but he didn't do anything about it. So suddenly it's not just about a, a young boy molesting another young, young boy, which is bad enough, of course, but now we have a real cardinal involved. And it's not just any cardinal, it's the Archpriest of St. Peter's Basilica, mm. which is a rather prestigious title to have. Uh, Pontus, yeah? you mentioned several times that they were young boys. Yeah. How young are we talking about? I I'm not quite sure. I only know that they were below 18. Okay. Yeah, sexually interested age. <laughs> so at least, uh, yes, uh, apparently. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. At least one of them was. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So we've had another scandal not too long ago when we had a cardinal involved. It was uh, Theodore McCarrick, the American who was defrocked in 2019. But that's a rare event, and also defrocking him was the only thing that. Pope Francis could do since the scandal was happened in, in the US and not in the Vatican. But now, since it is in the Vatican, there could and should, in my opinion, be a legal trial as well, not just the taking away the, the fancy, you know, frock. And we know that Frankie is, is following this very closely because four days before the hearing with these witnesses, he removed Cardinal Comastri from office including his position as archpriest of the St. Peter's Basilica. Officially, we should say that the cardinal resigned, but uh, since it happened only four days before the hearing, it strongly suggests that, that he was asked to leave. So Francis now has to decide what is worse, uh, to have a legal trial against one of his own cardinals, or do nothing, which means to others that he's not taking this serious at all. Yeah. And he hasn't had to make that choice before since uh, all cases before has been outside his legal uh, jurisdiction. So that, that's interesting. We'll see how, how he will handle this. Mm -hmm. So there was another big thing this week involving the Pope. Uh, we've talked about before, of course, Frank's attitude when it comes to gay rights. Uh, he's sounded fairly liberal for a pope from time to time, but the, when it boiled down to you know the real thing, he has also said that he has no problem with same-sex couples living together or even having a civil union as long as they don't have sex with each other. That that's so you can <laughs> live together, but uh, you know none of the naughty stuff, and that's just <laughs> no hanky panky, no no idiotic to ask that of people. <laughs> Well, not in times of COVID, no. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> but but still, I mean, I know that people have been hoping for that. Maybe Frankie could even condone, if not a marriage, or at least some sort of blessing of, of same-sex couples. But now uh, the news is that we know it will absolutely not happen. Francis has let the Inquisition speak also known as the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the CDF. And they have spoken very clearly in a document produced in response to a direct question, a so-called dubium, which was submitted to them by pastors. They have stated now very clearly that a blessing of same-sex unions is out of the question. And this response was explicitly approved by Francis. So this is his opinion as well. They say now that 
It's necessary that what is blessed by the church must be according to the designs of what God inscribed in the creation and fully revealed by Christ the Lord. And further they say that gay marriages are, quote, a union not ordered to the creator's plan, end quote. So that's a no. <laughs> uh, and then and then they go on and say, do they want to smoothen the blow a little bit and clarify so um, very generously that you can still bless gay people because, quote, God blesses sinful man so that he may recognize that he is part of his plan of love and allow himself to be changed by him, end quote. Ah, that's right. So if you're gay, you have to change. And you can bless gay people so that they stop being gay, but you cannot bless the actual gayness in them. That is going too far. So, um, again, we, we know where Francis stands on this issue. Even Elton John has gotten involved this time and, and uh, <laughs> publicly told Frankie off. I don't think that will help a lot, but um, there you go. You mean whom? Help whom? <laughs> Us. <laughs> Us. <laughs> well. It's just like, I find this so ridiculous mm. because... Like last year, they blessed uh, like a gate at Cologne Cathedral mm. or in an older school, they blessed a bench that they built, that, that like the school built for, for students to sit on. So like they can bless benches, they can bless ships, they can yeah. bless gates, but right. they can't. Yeah, but not no, people no. who love each other. Yeah. Bless people <laughs> that love each other. Like yeah, what's, it's, what's, yeah. what's happening? And it's, it's so <laughs> hypocritical as well. They say, oh, no, no, we bless them and gay people are okay. As long as they are not gay. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. What kind of <laughs> message that that's? Ah. It's a silly Vatican kind of message. It's silly and very, very hurtful. It is for yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. All right, but you keep telling him off. <laughs> yeah. It will definitely make a difference. Yeah, I think he may um, have cancelled his subscription by now. But. Yeah, yeah. Actually, do you think? Okay, this is a call for a person to contact us if you are listening. From the Vatican. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Because we have listeners from most countries in the world. We could actually see. Maybe we can go check. Exactly. If you live in Rome, if you're listening from Rome and you happen to walk in the middle of the Vatican City, like uh, on St. Peter's Square or I don't know, or inside the Palace Gardens or, or whatever, please let us know that I am currently listening to your podcast from the Vatican. That would be awesome. That would be great. And it's even better if you remove your headphones and turn up the volume really loud. Yeah. Yeah. While you do yeah. it. <laughs> now, that would be a, a little bit too much, probably, for the for the palace guards. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, thank you very much, Pontus for poking the Pope once again. Thank you. And I'm afraid we will have to turn our sceptical eyes to what's been going on around the COVID situation. So there are a lot of things that we could talk about that I will not. Uh, however, I'd like to mention the fact that Moderna is starting their clinical tests on children under the age of 12, which is a, a good thing in a way. Because without vaccinating children, we will not be able to stop this because they can be spreaders and that's a little bit of an issue. However, the question remains whether vaccination prevents the spread of the virus as well. 
as getting seriously ill. Because that's what children do, mostly. They don't get ill, but they do spread the virus. And that's a bit of an ongoing debate still. We don't have much of evidence as of now. But some experts argue that since mucosal infections, you know, the, the things that start happening in your nose, and that's basically the, how the infection kicks in, they are not much affected by the vaccination. And, and therefore, we should not expect much of a change in transmission of the virus. But data seems to disagree with that. Pfizer, Moderna vaccines, they show changes in virus counts and reduced infection rates as well in populations that include also those who already are vaccinated. So it's not very strong evidence still, but it is definitely promising. So we are waiting for more data on this, but uh, there is reason for cautious optimism. That would be great if any kind of vaccine could prevent uh, transmission as well, because that would definitely mean that we can get a little bit closer to actual herd immunity. But there is another thing that I definitely want to talk about, and that is a little bit closer to my turf, which is tourism. And obviously, a lot of people around Europe are fearing the worst when it comes to their jobs in the tourism industry, that if this year we'll have to go without any tourists being able to move around Europe. I mean, last year was not exactly like that because last year a lot of countries in the middle of summer opened up and that added to the rage of the, the actual pandemic, uh, unfortunately, that uh, a lot of people started spreading the virus across country borders as well. So the European Commission handed in a proposal that will be discussed on the 18th of March, which will be yesterday by the time this goes out. <laughs> which will be yesterday, I like that. It, yeah, it's, it's, it will always be funny to say that. And uh, according to that proposal that was leaked, actually, so it shouldn't have become known to people outside of the European Commission, but uh, it will apparently mean that if it's voted on, if it's accepted, then there will be a vaccine certificate issued for uh, European citizens of different countries of the European Union and the European economic area who have already been vaccinated or got a um, negative test result or been uh, through the, the actual illness and uh, have gained immunity through the illness itself. So there is a lot to discuss about this, but there is one major question, and especially for me as a Hungarian, uh, from the, the country of deviance, from the European norms, whether vaccines that have not been accepted and um, approved by the European Medicines Agency, like the Sputnik V or the Sinopharm vaccine, the Chinese one, whether they will be included in the certificate or accepted in the certificate as proper vaccination. Because there are hints by some countries that they would not accept these if travelers wanted to come to their country with these vaccines in the background. But this, the interesting thing about this uh, commission proposal is that this apparently includes those two vaccines as well. Because emergency approval was given by a local country uh, medicines agency and a local authority. 
So that is an open question, and that doesn't necessarily mean that all countries have to accept those vaccines. But if a vaccine certificate will be the one that unites all the countries in the way and uh, gives an opportunity to free movement and people actually practicing their fundamental right of free movement within the, within, uh, the, the borders of Europe, well, this will have to include those as well. So uh, we are waiting for that to happen. And the end end of next week, uh, the European Council will meet as well. So there will be a meeting, the, the usual spring meeting, and that's where they are, they're going to discuss it. The aim is to do this before the summer season starts. And obviously, they try to, for the sake of the, some countries' economies as well, because there are some countries in the European Union that are so dependent on tourism that another season without tourists can be absolutely devastating to their economies. So opening to vaccinated or tested travelers starting in May is the actual aim here. We'll keep an eye out for that. But in the meantime, there is a larger issue. Right. So what the fuck is going on with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine there? Yeah, well, that's the big question, isn't it? Uh uh, because right now, as we record this, lots of countries, especially in Europe, have put a temporary hold on all vaccination with the AstraZeneca slash Oxford vaccine. Yeah. And at the moment, at least, and they're, they're, it's, it's coming in hour per hour here, but I know that France, Denmark, Germany, Italy, Spain, Norway, Iceland, Bulgaria, the Netherlands and Ireland, Latvia and Sweden and a few more have joined this temporary ban uh, and it's also outside of Europe in some cases. I mean, Thailand and Democratic Republic of Congo, for one. So there are two concerns now. Why is this happening? And this is happening as we speak. So maybe this is changing until you hear it. But uh, right now, there are two concerns. One is uh, that there are reports about a few patients suffering from blood clots after taking the shot. Mm-hmm. And that includes at least two deaths. Uh, that has been reported. And the other is uh, also some unusual bleedings or blood marks under the skin after you've taken the vaccine. So this could be something potentially dangerous. Uh, we don't really know. And I, of course, cannot be sure uh, that there's nothing there. Don't take uh, medical advice from a podcast, at least not from this one. But we have to consider the other, we, the, the facts. Uh, there, there are around 5 million people that have re- received at least one dose of the vaccine by now. And in an article uh, as of the 15th of March, The Guardian points out that even if we have around 30 so-called thromboembolic events, which is cases with people developing blood clots, that is actually just normal to happen for 5 million people within a week. The the Guardian actually has calculated that for 5 million people, random people, this could happen to about 100 of them on average every week, which wouldn't be strange. So having 30 reported that I've got the vaccine, it doesn't really mean that it was the vaccine that did it. It's just... uh, what normally happens to people. And I think right now, a lot of politicians and others who are in positions uh, that have to decide things, they want to appear uh, responsible and careful and not taking any risks, etc. But unless there are more data that we don't know about, 
I, I think it seems to be very exaggerated mm-hmm. uh, at the moment. In, in my opinion, not a doctor, don't take medical advice from me. But others agree with me. It's the Guardian uh, article that I mentioned. And in Norway, I noticed that Marit Simonsen, who is a science writer and science communicator and a skeptic, and someone we actually have had on the show way back in 2016, episode 21, look it up. (laughs) She wrote a good article about it today, the 16th of March, which we will link to. Uh, Well, you'll have to translate it from Norwegian, but I think uh, Google Translate will do that very well. And there are others also to try to point out that there doesn't seem to be a lot of objective data behind the current uh, AstraZeneca scare. So what, what, what is going on? Why is this happening now? Well, I, there is one controversial idea coming up. Uh, a high manager at the Swedish Civil Contingencies Agency says that they know within their agency that the vaccine industry is being targeted by misinformation campaigns by foreign agencies. So, and the goal for that would be to discredit vaccine safety and create uncertainty. We do also know that we have a big drive from China and Russia to sell their vaccines to Europe, like you mentioned, uh, Andras, the Sputnik and uh, whatnot, the Sinopharm. And uh, that, of course, is easier to do if there's a shortage of vaccine in Europe. Which there is. Yeah, there is for it to begin with, even before this happened. But if you if you take away the AstraZeneca one, then you, it's even worse. So this is a bit speculative, and I don't want to sell you a new big conspiracy theory. But we need to at least remember that such things can happen and have happened. We know that there are misinformation campaigns uh, led by big countries for different reasons, and maybe. There's something in in there right now. Yeah, and it's um um I've read a lot of jokes, but also different ideas about AstraZeneca being taken off <laughs> the the plan um right now in Germany. Mm. A lot of people are really angry, and um someone on Twitter also didn't fail to point out that they were like, oh, so why don't we just vaccinate young women then because they're taking the contraception pill which causes thrombosis like which actually causes thrombosis and there it's just said like oh well then the women has have to regulate the other risks like just don't smoke and don't be overweight <laughs> and stuff right and there the, the risk is actually there yeah there are there are lots of different reasons why uh, an increase in yeah. blood clotting can happen lots of different reasons yeah one of them is yeah. is like sitting still yeah for for a long long time that's what we do in covid <laughs> we're told to do it almost yeah <laughs> yeah yes so yeah, yeah so it's 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 difficult and it's just like we have the chance to fight covid and it just feels like we're not doing it because of fear-mongering that's what i personally feel i think it it feels like uh, overreaction it's like fear-mongering uh, it doesn't feel quite right no. but uh, unless as i said unless there are other data out there that we don't know about. But if you just go about the publicly available information, I wonder what the fuss is about. Yeah. No, and, and obviously, it's a fine line between acting responsibly and adding to the already existing scare. Mm. Yeah. Like, the, the acting responsibly part, in my opinion, is mostly that if there is at least a little chance that it is caused by the, the vaccine, then you have to apply a lot of caution, right? Mm. So... 
it's understandable that they decide to stop the, the vaccinations for a short while, but then you have to communicate it clearly. What the the reason for for not going on with this for like 10 days or 14 days or I don't know how long, because you just want to be absolutely sure that it doesn't show any actual causal relationship. But it's not it's not being communicated. It's just country after country, they decided to stop vaccinating with AstraZeneca. And that means that hundreds of thousands or even millions of people are not getting a vaccine while they could. Yeah. And that's risky too. It is risky as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then obviously, the more countries join the band the more the scare will grow yeah. on social media and people will will share it i'm hearing the same thing from my mother i keep asking her when she will accept the vaccine and she she decided not to because she reads too much of this shit online yeah. and i cannot make that go away and it is especially about the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine there's been a lot of bad news about it some of it i think is because AstraZeneca themselves were messing up, especially their communication in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. But but also the f- fact that you decided they hadn't tested it on on older people, so yeah. for a while, and I think still older people have been excluded from just from the specifically the AstraZeneca vaccine. But that has led to a lot of people that have said, well, we know that the AstraZeneca vaccine is dangerous for older people, and I've said. No, we don't know that. No, we don't know. <laughs> we just don't know if it is as effective for older people. And that's there's no reason actually to think that it wouldn't be, but it's just that it wasn't tested, so we cannot say for sure. But it was never that it was dangerous for, for older people. And people just stare at me and think think I'm crazy. But that that is what it is. But so there's a lot of rumors about uh, this vaccine that goes around which are not founded in reality, and uh, I don't hear a lot of rumors about the other vaccines that way. Yeah, I wonder why it's Oster. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's, it's for some reason, it's sometimes also like if the wave of panic starts, you don't know like where it starts, but it just started somewhere and it just goes on then. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on and find out what other news we have to share with our listeners this week. Yeah, so we're starting with the news and I would like to start with a good piece of news. Good idea. And that is that there's a new book out by Andre Wolf. Mm-hmm. And he's an author of Mimikama, which is a fact-checking website based in Austria. Mm-hmm. So we already know he's a cool guy. <laughs> and his book is called Angriff auf die Demokratie, wie Rechtsextremisten die sozialen Medien unterwandern. <laughs> or, or <laughs> sounds absolutely clear to me. Yeah, like, you, you know, I shouldn't say anything more because now it's clear what it's about, right? Mm-hmm. So no, it's a <laughs> the title translated would be Attacking Democracy, How Far-Right Extremists Undercut Social Media. Mm. And um, the author says that uh, especially this undercutting um, of social media can be quite dangerous mm-hmm. because chain mails uh, might lead to alternative facts and these might lead to conspiracy theories and this will uh, eventually end in violence and you could see that with the 5g uh, conspiracies where in the end they actually attacked these 5g masts right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and and um burned them <laughs> and stuff and 
yeah, this this book is about a very important topic. I didn't read it yet, <laughs> but I hi still highly recommend it. And if anybody wants to buy it for me, I would also read it immediately. <laughs> so yeah, good book. And thank you, Andre Wolf. <laughs> oh, yeah. And talking about fake news, you have to be able to spot fake news, right? That's a skill that is very useful these days. And uh, we've heard of a couple of attempts to educate people, and especially students, into critical thinking and uh, how they can evaluate news items in order to spot fake news. So this is what a Swedish uh, group of researchers did at the Uppsala University. And um, what um, they came up with was a project called the News Evaluator Project. And it started in 2017 as a mass experiment run as part of the European Researchers' Night in Sweden. And um, it still continued the research, the second phase of the research. Uh, they analyzed all the details uh, that they managed to gather at this mass experiment, and they have published their outcomes as well. So it looks like this kind of um, project worked. The tool was tested with just over 200 students that that help them gather a lot of uh, different news items that they can use. And um, through a little bit of expert advice and expert participation in the way that um, they provided something like um, tutoring activity to participants as well at some stage, the first stage of this development. And they managed to show that at the second stage of uh, this uh, news evaluator program that the participants showed an increased capacity to be able to spot fake news. So it's called the news evaluator and it's very much like projects that we have already covered on the show like the bad news project and similar similar stuff. So it's a self-test basically with uh, with feedback in the middle and the research showed that if the feedback is is not given or the expert advice is not given at the beginning is just you go through them the level of confidence and the level of uh, capability uh, gained in spotting fake news is much lower as a result so this is what this really adds to the already existing picture of how to train people to spot fake news so there are nine news items uh, included in this project and um they are all ones that have been shared through social media. And the task of the participant is to determine whether the content of those news items are verified or are verifiable. And uh, after the first four attempts to, to determine that, you will be given that feedback that I've already talked about uh, with some instructions in the form of videos as to how to perform online news evaluations. So they will show you how you can do some backwards search on different items, how you can try to spot whether it's from a uh, reliable source, how you can look for pictures with a Google search in order to find out if it has been already debunked, the validity of that uh, piece of news. So that kind of stuff. And after this, the, the feedback part, you will be given another five items to find out if you've improved your skills. 
And uh, the research shared by the scientists of Uppsala University say that uh, it really makes a difference. So well done. The, the lead scientist, uh, who's an associate professor at Uppsala University, uh, says a lot of stuff on the website of the project. His name is Thomas Nygren. Yeah, and we, we should mention this is uh, uh, available online for anybody to test it. It is available online and, of course, it will be shared. And it is in English. Mm-hmm. It is in English. So, go ahead. Yeah, this is a good thing that they didn't have to do it in Swedish because... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well... Yeah, as we all know, in Sweden, people tend to understand English quite well. Yeah, and um, you talked about a tool to help students detect fake images. Mm -hmm. And I stumbled over a study where they found out that there might be a connection between people with high emotional intelligence and their susceptibility to fake news. And for those who don't know, emotional intelligence is the ability to understand, use and manage your own emotions with um, self-management, self-awareness, social awareness and relationship management. And that means your emotional intelligence can affect huge parts of your life, for example, relationships, but also how you get your, your discipline <laughs> Um, your discipline with with studying and stuff. But the concept in itself is controversial um, because not all tests seem to be equally reliable and valid. Mm -hmm. But this study found out that people who scored highly in their EQ tests, in their emotional um, intelligence quotient tests, Mm -hmm. also could distinguish fake news from real news better. (laughs) As we all know, fake news can present a big problem to a society and also on an individual level. And there the participants got different news stories and people with a high emotional intelligence score um, seem to find it easier to to see like, oh, that they used fear-mongering language, for example. I think it sounds reasonable, but um, I haven't looked at the study, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think that too, like, it, it sounded reasonable. I just think it's also a good idea to, to just keep our skeptical glasses on in that regard and, yeah, applaud the study in uh, on one hand, but on the other hand also just um, keep on being skeptical if, for example, if these tests are testing your emotional intelligence or your mood, <laughs> for example. Yeah, yeah. All right, you know, the best way to spot if something is uh, basically fake is that if it's a complete bullshit. So if it's obviously bullshit, then uh, you should be very skeptical about it. But how do you know? (laughs) Well, one of those examples is when someone wants to activate your body's self-healing powers with with something that's supposed to transmit radio frequencies. (laughs) Is it 5G? In, into water. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so the water that you're using, you're drinking, it vitalizes the water. That's, that's how it works. Vitalizes. So um, mm. this is what a Swiss company by the name Vasse Matrix. <laughs> I don't know if, if, if I pronounced it well. Yes. But um, <laughs> this is a, a water vitalizer. And obviously, in the promotional material, the first thing that you notice is that they do drop the name Nikola Tesla. So it's based on the basic theory of Nikola Tesla, and as it as the the website claims, and uh, it's a selling point. Obviously, the first one is is that it's it's made by Nikola Tesla. High frequency therapy is mentioned on the website as well, and. 
they say that hexagonal water, I, I could, could not identify that, what hexagonal water means, because water is not hexagonal. <laughs> it's a completely <laughs> different shape. But not unless you put it in special bottles that are hexagonal. Yeah, could be, could be, yeah. Could be, I don't know. Never mind. So it doesn't make any sense. But the problem is that since it uses the range of electromagnetic radiation that is used by amateur radio users who are who are doing radio communication, it uses the f- same frequencies. So the Federal Network Agency of Germany decided to ban the use of these devices. And what? Well, since they are very, very expensive devices, eight thousand euro each for a little piece of nothing basically so uh do check out the website the ap ap news website so the associated press uh reported it and everyone picked up the story and basically uh republished it without any change but this equipment doesn't look like it does anything but it was banned by the german federal network agency the the company has not commented on it they keep selling it but the agency the the network agency says that uh, since it's very expensive and about 2400 pieces have been sold in germany the the owners are allowed to keep their devices but not to turn them on (laughs) (laughs) that's very that's a relief yeah it's a relief but but yeah Uh, i I bought something that i cannot turn it on Very, very expensive uh, sort of decorative thing there. You put it in the corner. Yeah, but the, the other problem is who's going to enforce that the equipment is, al- is not allowed? Yeah. I mean, if they can keep it, is someone someone going to be standing next to them, watching uh, over them all the time so that they, they don't turn it on? Of course not. So it's just, it's a piece of nothing. But, but my, my reflection is if you ha- if you're a radio amateur... You could do your own water at home. You don't have to buy this eight thousand euro machine. You can do. You could just put it next to your. You said it was the same radio frequencies. You just put the bottle of water next to your already. Yeah, but I I doubt that it's been predominantly bought by radio amateurs. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you never know. The the fact that it's it uses the same frequencies that are allocated to radio users uh, doesn't say that that it has anything to do with them. Yeah. Or that it works at all. Yeah. Other than annoying them a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, well done. Vasse Matrix. <laughs> Not a scam. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like people that are scammed are very susceptible and very vulnerable by these, for example, this water <laughs> mm-hmm. vitalizing mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And other people who can be very vulnerable are users or new users of social media. Mm-hmm. For example, somebody who is new on Instagram and don't know their way around there yet. Yeah. And a social media a watchdog based in the UK yeah, looked through Insta re- Instagram recommendations and they say the users were pushed um, toward COVID misinformation, anti-vax content and anti-Semitic material. And that's, it was found by the Center for Countering Digital Hate. Mm -hmm. And they said um, the algorithm used in the explore page and the suggested posts, they're they're following the algorithm of Instagram. And 
they say this algorithm is very programmatic. Well, how this works is that things you follow will, like related things to the things you follow on Instagram will be shown in these pages. For example, I get a lot of mom content right now because I follow a few mom profiles on Instagram. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, yeah. what they found out is that misinformation was mostly shown to new users who also followed anti-vax influencers or wellness personalities. So that were already following mm -hmm. these kind of um, contents. But what this uh, Center for Countering Digital Hate said is that algorithms are always an act of the publisher and it changes the neutrality of the platform because you're guided somewhere yeah. of what you should look at. And they say that Instagram and thus Facebook should also really actually be liable for the damage to individuals and, and a society. Oh yeah, dream on. Yeah, yeah. And they actually <laughs> spoke to Facebook And Facebook said mm -hmm. that the research of the center was outdated. They said that that had happened in the beginning of the pandemic, but that now this is outdated and that they already did their part, but that they're also now focusing on uh, connecting people to credible information. So I think we can all agree that they do have this little warning signs now. And they say like, oh, this content uh, contains information about COVID, for example. And But what they also want to do is they want to make it harder to find anti-vax profiles on Instagram now. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see how that <laughs> yeah how that works. Um, but it, it's still very interesting to see how we live in this um, algorithm world. That's right. <laughs> so to say. Okay, another book that we'd like to report on. Uh, we haven't read it. Unfortunately, it is in Spanish. I mean, unfortunately for us, but fortunately for those speaking and reading Spanish, because uh, that's a book on food science. And uh, that's always welcome in the skeptical communities, especially if it comes from uh, someone who actually knows their shit about food stuff. Uh, like this this guy whose name is uh, Miguel Angel Lureña. He's a doctor in food science and technology, and he does write a blog and writes for several news outlets as well including El País and um, his book is recommended by ARP SAPC that you can find at escepticos.es so the book is about the different important questions of the food stuff how to try to make sense of advertising what the different things that you see on advertising food uh, items actually mean because a lot of people do not have the knowledge to properly interpret those food labels and they don't recognize neither the ingredients uh, nor the catchphrases or or those claims that are absolutely biased and unsubstantiated by proper evidence so the world of food is very important to all of us but it has to be understood properly and this is what the book is supposed to help with so the different topics include green bananas the antibiotic free meat or the the yogurts that that help your immune system and all that stuff so i think we could list a couple of very familiar claims that we come across every day yeah. in our everyday life so it's a welcome thing and the the title of the book is don't get mixed up with food uh, or something like that in spanish <laughs> so uh well done and uh, if uh, someone has read the book and who, who reads spanish please let us know more about it if you care to do so 
But that has been all the news that we wanted to share with our listeners today, which means that uh, we are about to find out if we have someone that we can give a really wrong prize for this week. Well, actually, this is a fantastic news this week. Nobody has been really wrong at all. <laughs> I doubt that. <laughs> I doubt it too. But um, Bad news is that nobody has been really right. <laughs> yes, that's the bad news. So uh, I think we'll skip that segment for, for today. Okay. It's been a long enough uh, episode uh, anyways. So we'll come back with some juicy really wrongs uh, next week. <laughs> yeah, but the, don't rush out and say something absolutely stupid just to get on, to the, on the show. So <laughs> That doesn't work. Please, That, that disqualifies yeah. you immediately if you do it just to be mentioned on the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. all right thank you very much and uh, that means that uh, we are concluding the show and as usual we like to conclude it with a quote and I'm quoting this time from Estonian chemist and philosopher of science Rein Vihalem I'm not very familiar with those names so uh, I hope I didn't butcher it too much But the quote is, The scientific world picture does not include things that have not been constructed, that are not understood as artifacts. Instead of the final cause, one starts to speak about purpose, which nature itself does not have. Only humans can set aims and achieve them by their activities if they know the laws of nature and set up various processes based on them and organize them purposively. Hmm, very nice. Quite deep. Quite deep, isn't it? Yeah, quite deep. Yeah, <laughs> but good. <laughs> yeah, it is. So, thank you very much. I'd like to thank both of you, Anika and Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Many thanks also to our listeners for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Vislat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe What the fuck just happened? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't remember what to say. No, I was waiting for you, Annika. I said hello. Okay. <laughs> See us, Tom. Hey, son, hello. hey, son. Okay, let's, let's do it again. <laughs> let's do it again. <laughs> hey, son, hey, son. Hello. Oh, fuck. This <laughs> is going really well. So uh, that they can recognize that they are... Uh, they... Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Is that what they 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 recognized? <laughs>
good. <laughs> yeah, that's what I think about um, Catholicism. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. It's very, very hard to quote the church. This hurts. The church. <laughs> you don't want to quote the church. Mm. 